Yeah, Joe, I appreciate you wearing the, the shirt, man. It's the first time I think I've seen you in it. It, it uh, looks great. And yeah, one of the main reasons I came to uh, Redeemer Fellowship was the possibility that someday I'd be able to preach in a t-shirt. So uh, that dream has been realized uh, this morning. Uh, but it is, it is great to be part of this congregation. It's great to be a supported missionary. Uh, my whole field is the field of missions, and Joe just described uh, what that is about. And this is a supporting church of the work that Word Partners does around the world in about 63 countries. Uh, and that multiplication of leaders is huge. We've got about 20 training staff. I'm part of that. Uh, but through the rip effect of us training and then them training and then them training, about 14,000 pastors and church leaders were trained to preach God's word with God's heart uh, last year during a year when COVID uh, restricted us in some big ways. And so we're grateful to God for that. I'm grateful to God for the partnership in the gospel through the support of this church. And I'm grateful to be able to open God's word uh, this uh, this morning. Uh, obviously, this my life surrounds uh, around the preaching of God's Word and sort of have uh, the opportunity to do that in my home church is a real treat, and I'm grateful to the elders for that, that opportunity. Well, it's getting real for my wife, Mickey, and I. Uh, any day now, we are going to become grandparents uh, for the very first time. And praise God. And it is, got to tell you, it's different than when we had kids. I'm sure every grandparent says that. And one of the things that is different is the whole phenomena of the gender reveal event. And I'm thinking everybody here on some level has been part of a gender reveal for a friend or a family member or yourself. Uh, our son and daughter-in-law took it pretty low-key invited family over. They had this thing that kind of exploded blue confetti, having a grandson uh, to reveal the gender of the child. But some people really go, they really go out and the, making the big reveal. A few years ago, uh, an overzealous dad, shall we say, in Arizona, uh, used his rifle to fire it and set off blue powdered explosives to announce the birth of his son. Well, he also set off a forest fire that uh, destroyed about 50 acres of forest land and did like $8 million worth of damage. We like the big reveal, right? Uh, we, we like the wow factor. Uh, we like to pull back the curtain and, and have that big surprise. When the passage that we're going to look at this morning from the book of Ruth, the, the Lord is pulling back the curtain. And there is a big reveal that he wants to show us in order to communicate something that will both display his praiseworthiness and give us great hope. A big reveal at the end of the book of Ruth. So if you haven't already, please turn in your Bible to the book of Ruth. And we're going to look at the very end of the story. It's really the climax of the story uh, where the author gives us the big reveal in chapter 4, verses 13 through 22. But I just want to real quickly set the context. I'm not going to assume you've all been studying the book of Ruth all week long or have even read it recently, though you may be familiar with it. And a lot of people are familiar with the book of Ruth, even outside of of Christian circles, it's recognized to be a, just a wonderfully written short story. Uh, one commentator has called it an exquisite novella. I don't know what an exquisite novella is, but I like saying it out loud in front of a bunch of people. 
It's a beautiful story. It's a well-written story. And what's more than that, it's a true story that communicates uh, to us about God and his good purposes. And it begins, chapter 1, verse 1, we get the setting in terms of the history. This is during the days when the judges ruled. And if you're not remembering what it was like in the days when the judges ruled, just think of every dystopic movie you've ever seen and mash them together. Because that's pretty much the time of the judges, perhaps minus the zombies. Uh, There were a few zombie-like folks, though, in the book of, of Judges. But it was a crazy time, a time of chaos, a time of turmoil, a time of great evil. Uh, God's people, the nation of Israel, had entered the land. The God's people were in God's place, uh, but they weren't living faithfully under God's rule, and so they were not experiencing his blessing. Well, this story happens during that time frame, and it begins with a family from Bethlehem, which seems hopeful because Bethlehem is a, a royal city, and yet they move, they sojourn in the country of Moab. Uh, which seems to be a big mistake because God had revealed that they shouldn't do that. Uh, Moab uh, was one of the pagan, idol-worshiping neighboring countries around the nation of Israel. And God had told his people, you need to stay in the land because my covenant promises during this era are tied to the land. And for an Israelite to sojourn in Moab was even more distasteful given who the Moabites were. Moab literally means from father. They are the descendants of the incest between Lot and one of his daughters. So they're related to the Israelites distantly, but utterly distasteful for them, to them. And so this family sojourns and things just fall apart. The, 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 the man dies, his two sons die, and the woman, Naomi, is left by herself. She hears that there's a barley harvest in back home in Bethlehem, and so she's getting ready to go to Bethlehem, and here's her assessment of herself at the end of chapter 1. She says, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara. Don't call me Naomi, which means sweet or pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full, but he's bringing me back empty. Why call me Naomi, the Lord has testified against me. The Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So scene change, chapter 2, Naomi goes back home to Bethlehem. Only she's not alone. One of her daughters-in-law, her sons had married these Moabite girls. One of them goes with her. Her name is Ruth. And Ruth begins to show her character and her faithfulness to Naomi. She begins to go out to help provide for them by gleaning. The system that God had instituted among his people in an agricultural society where the poor and the destitute could go when there's a harvest into the field and pick whatever didn't just got left behind. And also the Lord had said, don't harvest the corners of your field. Leave those for the poor of the land to glean. And so Ruth does this. And she just happens to go to the field that belongs to a guy named Boaz. And Boaz, in the midst of the chaos and the evil of the judges, is a righteous man. He's a good guy. And he recognizes Ruth's righteous, good character. And so he, he not just allows her to glean, but gives her all kinds of grain because he's heard about Ruth's faithfulness to her mother-in-law, Naomi. And so Ruth comes back home to Naomi. She's got all this grain. Naomi says, daughter, where did you glean today? She says, well, in the field of a guy named Boaz. And Naomi says, Boaz, Boaz. 
He is our kinsman redeemer. This kinsman redeemer who has uh, the role within the extended family to help a family that doesn't have a a male, male heir buy back land to keep it in the family line because the land is tied to God's covenant promises. And Naomi helps Ruth to put this plan into motion where she can make her intentions known to Boaz to invite him to marry her, which will also enact another kind of strange Israelite custom, that of the Leverite marriage, where if they marry and produce a male heir, that child is actually considered to be the descendant of the deceased husband, but again, also keeps the family heritage in line going. And so they put this plan in motion, and by the time we get to uh, the middle of chapter 4, Boaz has redeemed, has uh, Ruth through a whole process, this sandal thing at the city gate. And then we get to verse 11. Look at chapter 4, verse 11. Boaz has just made the transaction in order to redeem Ruth and continue the family name and the family land. In verse, chapter 4, verse 11, then all the people who were at the gate and the elders who witnessed this whole process said, uh, we, said we are witnesses. May the Lord make this woman, Ruth, who is coming into your house, Boaz, like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you, Boaz, act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, which was considered a very honored house or lineage, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So there we are as we enter our text for this morning. So let's, let's begin to... Let's, Dive into the text, and I want you to see what do you think the big reveal is in this part of the story? What do you think the big reveal is? So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went in to her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day, without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashan. Nashan fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Brothers and sisters, this is God's holy word. We thank him for it today. This section in the book of Ruth really breaks down quite easily into two pieces, two two parts. 
Uh, the first section is the rest of the story. Verses 13 through 17, we get the rest of the story of the book of Ruth. And then in verses 18 through 22, we get this genealogy. So let's walk through both of those. First, the rest of the story, and then the genealogy. Well, the rest of the story begins with Boaz following through on his promise to redeem Ruth. He marries her. And the townspeople, um, they, they answer. There's sort of this, if you read the whole book, the townspeople, especially the townswomen, uh, they're sort of like the background choir or, uh, the, yeah, the, in, a, in a play or something like that, or a musical. They just kind of pipe in every once in a while and sort of sing or say blessing or uh, give us a summary of what's going on. And they had already uh, indicated that their, their prayer was that the Lord would give Ruth conception and that she would produce a son. And that is what happens, that Boaz and Ruth produce a son. She became Boaz's wife and the Lord gave her conception. She bore a son, an heir. The family name is going to be perpetuated. I love how the author, the writer here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, talks about how the Lord gave her conception, gave her a ch them a child. I think that's a wonderful reminder to us. I think sometimes as husbands and wives, we think, well, we're just going to have children because we want to have children or because we're going to do something. And God makes it clear that every child is a gift. If God gives us children, it's, it's not because of us and what we've done ultimately. If God decides that he isn't going to give us children or that we have to wait, that isn't because of something we've done or haven't done as well. God is, God is sovereign and wise in how he gives children to families. And he, it is a grace every time that he does. Ruth and Boaz received this child, this son, this heir. The family name is going to be perpetuated. And then the townswomen speak blessing over this. Uh, blessing is a prominent theme throughout the book of Ruth. I encourage you to, to read or reread Ruth and, and note some of these things um, in the days ahead. But note who they speak blessing to and about. They speak blessing to and about Naomi. Were you expecting that? See, the author is, is focusing in on Naomi here. And he's really writing the major theme of the story through her life. And so their words of blessing extol God for who this child is in relation to Naomi. Look at verse 14. He is going to be a redeemer for her. And they pray that his name will be renowned in Israel and that he will be a restorer of life for her. And they prophesy that he will be a nourisher of her old age. And when the women bless Ruth as the mother of the child, it's, it's in relationship to Naomi. She loves her mother-in-law. And, and she, Ruth, is more valuable to Naomi than seven sons. Naomi lost two sons in Moab. But the, the writer is telling us that this Moabite daughter-in-law that you gained is more valuable to you than seven sons. One commentator had said that in the, the Hebrew context, that is the supreme tribute. But why is the author doing this? Why is the author focusing our attention on Naomi? Did anyone tell him that the book is titled Ruth? 
Why is he focusing our attention on Naomi? He is doing that because he wants us to see the great reversal that God has accomplished here. From the beginning of the story to the end of the story. Remember those words I read from the beginning of the story in chapter 1? Naomi's assessment of herself. She says in chapter 1 that the hand of the Lord has gone against me. The Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. That, that Yahweh has brought me back empty. That he has testified against me. That the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. She, went, she came back empty. But now, at the end of the story, what is happening? The author tells us she has not been left without a redeemer. She has a redeemer. And this redeemer will be a restorer and a nourisher. He will provide for her old age. And that this daughter-in-law that she didn't even want to come back with her is more valuable to her than seven sons. You see, God is writing this story. And, and he is telling us how to analyze things and to understand things. I think it's, it's very interesting to note that at the beginning of the story, as Naomi is saying that God's hand has gone against me, the Almighty is doing this, he's against me. The author never tries to correct her theology or, or tell us whether that's exactly right or exactly wrong. He just leaves it out there because the end of the story hasn't been written. And the end of the story is that God has not left you, Naomi, with a redeemer. And that he will be a restorer to you. See, the writer wants us to see, ultimately God wants us to see through his word, that he is the main character of this story. This is about him. And we see his, the subtle uh, contours of his sovereignty throughout this story. Several years ago, I was serving as an interim pastor not far from here. It was a, a one-year assignment. I was going to be the interim pastor, and then if I wanted to sort of uh, throw my name in the hat to be the long-term pastor there, I, I had the opportunity to, to do that as well. And as I went through that time with that congregation, I found my heart was really being knit with this church and these people. And I, I started to be able to visualize myself as their pastor, and I could see my family moving to that community. And so I applied for the job, and I, I candidated uh, for the job. And, I, you know, it wasn't a slam dunk, but I thought, this, I think this is a pretty good possibility. I think maybe this is why the Lord has led me here. And then I found out I didn't get the job. <laughs> Now, there was another candidate that they wanted to go with to be their pastor, and I was disappointed. I was a, I was a bit bitter. Uh, I, I struggled to understand what was going on, and I was left without a job at the time. But I did the next thing that I knew to do and, and, and tried to be faithful, serving the Lord, and then within a year or so of that, a relationship uh, started with Word Partners, the ministry I now serve with. And I can tell you that the Lord has me exactly where he wants me. I'm doing the thing that, that all these experiences in my uh, pastoral life and other experiences that I've had in, in the uh, business world are coming to bear, and I can see how he's using that. But you know what? God was doing more than that. Because the pastor that they called, he's a much better pastor than I would have been. And you know what else? That church partners with the ministry that I'm a part of. 
And so I worked side by side with that pastor, helping to train pastors to preach God's word with God's heart. See, God is doing all kinds of things, even through the disappointment and the hurt and even the sinful responses in our lives. And so Naomi is told that this, this child is a gracious provision for her. And the women say that a son has been born to her. And she receives the child, becomes his nurse and his caregiver. And now, with Naomi holding this child in her hands, we see the big reveal. Here is the wow factor. Who this child is. Who this child is. That is the big reveal. You see, this story was told to God's uh, Old Testament people um, and written down for them, but also for us. For them, this would have blown them away that this child we learn from the, uh, the genealogy is going to be the great-grandfather of King David. And so why was this story told to God's people? It was told so that they would know the lineage of the king, of the man after God's heart, of God's king, the one who would bring them from, from the chaos of the book of Judges into the kingdom of God's people. Now, I don't think we understand how epic that would be. Uh, they would have heard this and said, what, really? You mean King David's great-grandmother was a Moabite? You mean he was almost never born if it hadn't been for the, the sojourn of some of God's people into Moab and the faithfulness of one farmer named Boaz? That is amazing. That's incredible. I think, I think it'd be kind of like if you took a, 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 like a 10-year-old kid who, who was just idolized Tom Brady, the, the football player. And Tom Brady's considered the greatest quarterback ever. Ten Super Bowls. I think he won seven Super Bowls. Uh, but if you told that kid, you know, you're 10 years old, but about 10 years before uh, you were born in the 2000 NFL draft with the NFL football teams choose the college football players for their teams, Tom Brady was picked 199th which means 198 other players, none of whom play in the NFL anymore, were chosen before him. Which means that my favorite team did not pass on picking him six times and didn't take him. You'd tell that to that kid and he'd be like, what? Are you kidding me? He's the greatest quarterback of all time. Well, he should have been taken first. That is incredible. I can't believe it. God's great reversals. This is how he works. And so now we learn that the story of the book of Ruth is bigger than this little town of Bethlehem and is much more significant than, than gleaning or family inheritances or a, a boy meets girl hallmark ending. The final verses of the book confirm this for us. My life verse is... Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, said nobody ever. Why end this book with a genealogy? That is so anticlimactic. That is such a downer. Well, 
genealogies are pretty unspectacular to us, but that's us. In the ancient world, they are hugely important, especially when it's the genealogy that is royal. Because a royal genealogy is going to tell us who has the right to be king. And so our author here, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is highlighting God's faithfulness to all of his people. Not just to one widow in the little town of Bethlehem, but to all of his people. And see, our text answers the question raised at the very beginning of the book of Ruth. Has God abandoned Naomi? Has he brought her back empty? But there's a parallel question that God's people, the nation of Israel, are asking. Has God abandoned us in this chaos? Have we been left without a hope? Have we been left without a redeemer? How are we going to get from the chaos of the judges uh, to God's kingdom? What's the path forward? And what happens in this little town of Bethlehem uh, has generational implications, implications for God's good purposes way beyond the few years that the book of Ruth covers. I mean, the book of Ruth might cover 15 years uh, at the most, and most of it just kind of happens in less than a year. But this genealogy spans over 640 years. And it points to God's covenant faithfulness, his sovereign care for his people, his accomplishing of his purposes for his glory and for their ultimate good, for all of his people. You see, by caring for Naomi, this this one widow in the little town of Bethlehem, on her path from, from emptiness to fullness, God is powerfully demonstrating his covenant faithfulness for all his people. That's what this text is teaching us. That's that's the big central truth, the main idea. That by providing a redeemer for Naomi, God demonstrates his covenant faithfulness to all his people. Not just Naomi, not just the town of Bethlehem, but for all of Israel. By providing for them the lineage through which King David will be born, the descendant of Ruth and Boaz. They will experience blessing through him, through David and his lineage. And friends, so will we. The genealogies are really important. In fact, they're so important that two of the four gospel writers began their gospels in the New Testament with genealogies that trace the heritage of the Lord Jesus all the way back to this little town of Bethlehem. Listen to the opening verses of the book of Matthew. These are the opening verses of the New Testament. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez by Zerah and Perez by Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, sounded familiar, Ram, the father of Aminadab, Aminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Did you you remember that? Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, 
and Jesse, the father of David, the king. Friends, this is the, this is the really big reveal. This is the greater reveal in this passage that Ruth is one of the foremothers of Jesus Christ, the Redeemer. God has not left Naomi without a Redeemer, nor has he left us without one. There is a Redeemer. Jesus is his name. Naomi's Redeemer, the child, was named by the townspeople Obed. Obed means servant. Jesus was the suffering servant who served us by laying down his life, who said, I came not to, to be served, but to serve and to lay down my life as a ransom, as a payment to redeem many. Friends, think of the cross and the empty tomb. This is the greatest reversal of all time. At the cross, it looks like Satan has won, like God's son has been, been killed. And yet in the cross, Jesus was bearing the sin of all who would look to him in repentance and faith. And then at the empty tomb, we see that God received that payment in full. And, and put his approval on it in raising Jesus to the, from the dead and giving him eternal life, eternal life that he will share with all who look to him in faith. So if you don't know Jesus as your redeemer this morning, I invite you to come to him, to look to the one who, who paid the debt for our sin. Listen to what Paul says about redemption and Jesus' work from the book of Titus. For the grace of God, this is Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce godliness and worldly passion, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous to do good works. This is what Jesus has done. I love the first question and answer of the Heidelberg Catechism. The question is, what is your only comfort in life and death? The answer begins that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who has fully paid for all my sins and has set me free set me free from the tyranny of the devil. That's what Jesus did. That is, that is the redemption that he made through the payment of his, only of his own life. And if you do not know the joy and the reality of that freedom, then look to Jesus. He is your only Savior. If you trust him, repenting of your sin, placing your faith in him, he will redeem you, and you will be his. We are his. Collectively, we are his bride, Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5, that Jesus loved us and he gave himself for us. 
So by providing a redeemer for Naomi, God has demonstrated his covenant faithfulness to all his people. Now, I think that you can see that that demands a response from us. How do we respond to that? Well, I don't think we have to go very far. In fact, the text gives us the proper response to God's faithfulness in providing a redeemer. It's, it's through the words, through the song of the women, of the townswomen in, in uh, verse 14, Ruth 4, Ruth 4, chapter, sorry, Ruth 4, verse 14. The women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord. Praise be to God. Blessed be the Lord. He has not left you without a redeemer. Much the opposite. He has provided a redeemer for you. So bless his name. Praise his name. Declare his praiseworthiness. Join with the voice of Ruth and Boaz's great-grandson, or great, yeah, great-grandson David, who wrote in Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives your iniquities, who heals your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit who crowns you with steadfast love, God's faithful covenant-keeping love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. So how can we do that? How can we declare God's praiseworthiness in providing a redeemer? I'm going to just give us briefly three directions of application that you can work out on your own. Three directions for declaring God's praiseworthiness in providing a redeemer. The first is, is the most straightforward. Uh, lift your voice. Lift your voice regularly. Lift your voice in, in worship regularly. Lift your voice uh, on your own individually. Lift your voice corporately as you gather with God's people and center your worship on the person and the work of Jesus and the redemption that he has provided. And that's what I love about uh, Redeemer Fellowship and our worship, is that it's focused on Christ and what he has done. The songs that we sing, the readings that we read, the sacrament that we celebrate together focuses on Jesus and what he has done in redeeming us. But don't forsake it. Make sure there are this regular rhythm of worship. I talk to a lot of pastors um, in the United States, a lot of places, and through this whole COVID situation, the fact that we've had online uh, services and so forth has been a great blessing, but there's a concern <laughs> that people are getting a little too used to sitting in their living room in their jammies uh, worshiping. Uh, that's not the same as gathering with God's people. And so we need to be diligent, to be obedient to the writer to the Hebrews, to not forsake the gathering together uh, of of God's people with one another. We, there's no replacement for it. And there's no replacement for joining our voices together and lifting them to praise our Redeemer. So first, lift your voice regularly. And then secondly, live your life faithfully. Live your life faithfully. Our lives are a testimony of God's redeeming work. Ruth and Boaz are wonderful examples of, of people who just took everyday, act, everyday actions, did the next thing that was in front of them, and were faithful to that. You know, when Ruth went out gleaning, she wasn't thinking, oh, I'm going to meet some guy, and I'm going to be the foremother of Jesus because I'm gleaning in his field. And Boaz didn't think, 
oh, that woman gleaning in my field, I'm going to marry her and, you know, we're going to produce King David through our line. He just faithfully went to work that day. Eugene Peterson's classic book on Christian discipleship, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. I mean, the title says it all, right? A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. He writes this. There's a a great market for religious experience in our world. There is little enthusiasm for the patient acquisition of virtue. Little inclination to sign up for the long apprenticeship in what earlier generations of Christians called holiness. Religion in our time has been captured by a tourist mindset. Religion is understood as a visit to an attractive site to be made when we have adequate leisure. Is religious experience, is the tourist mindset the tone of your discipleship? I I find these words uh, convicting. And we can be tempted to sort of move from experience to experience, to high to the next high. And yet we're called to, to live out that faithful obedience day in and day out, doing the next thing that God has put in front of us. Um, I have a great heart for my, my kids, most of whom are in their 20s now, and I, I see their, their friends and um, others in sort of the, that generation. And I, there's this message constantly going to, to young folks, and I'm sure it was true in my generation as well, like, you got to be awesome, you got to be wonderful, you have to do amazing things. Well, maybe. Maybe you will. But mostly, we're just called to be faithful. Do the next thing the Lord has put in front of us. Be faithful with this and, and see where it goes from there. So live your life faithfully. Our lives will declare God's worth as we are faithful to him in the little things. And then finally, Look for God's activity. Look for God's activity. Identify God's faithfulness along the way. I mentioned one instance in my life, but I can think of others, and I hope you can too, that you can go back and look at at how things happen in your life, and you were disappointed, or you were bitter, or you were sinful. Yet God in his faithfulness was sovereignly leading you along as you trusted in him. You know, I have to confess something here. I know we had confession time a little bit earlier, but I think there's still time for one more confession. I have to confess that there is a little saying that I hear Christians saying that annoys the daylights out of me. It's this little saying, everything happens for a reason. Everything happens for a reason. I don't believe that. I don't believe that for a second. Because if God is sovereign over every single thing that happens and over every molecule in the universe, then everything happens for a million and a billion reasons. God is at work doing so many things, far beyond what my limited, finite mind can understand. No, we can't presume to always understand God's ways, but he is at work and we can trust him. And I, that should give us great hope, friends. And think about Job. I mean, the circumstances in his life, I don't think any of us have ever experienced anything like Job experienced it. And he didn't know this side of eternity, why all that was going on. He he didn't know the reasons that was happening. 
And yet he made this profession. Here's what I do know. I know that my Redeemer lives and that at last he will stand upon the earth. He spoke of this Redeemer. This Redeemer that we have that has been provided for us. Friends, may we trust in that. May we trust in a God who works out his purposes in the midst of the trying circumstances of our lives. And may we, we hope in that as we look to our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I'm thinking of these words from the hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. The writer says, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. God, we confess that many times we have judged you merely with our feeble senses, and we ask your forgiveness. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to trust you for your grace, knowing that behind uh, what seems to be frowning circumstances in our lives, you are working things, all things for your glory. And Lord, your work through the Lord Jesus Christ, the cross and the empty tomb are the great evidences of that. So may we look to Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.